So welcome everybody. Um, this is a special occasion of LSE Works, which is a whole series on the impact of uh, research on policy. And um, it's sponsored by Sage Publications. And um, what we're going to talk about today is um, the work that we've been doing in LSE Global Governance on human security. Um, LSE Global, I'm co-director of LSE Global Governance and we have a whole range of programs on governance, on global civil society, on climate change, on economics and on regions. And uh, this is, global security has been a very central part of what we do. So what I'm going to talk about is the work that we did specifically for Javier Solana when he was High Representative of Foreign, Common and Security Policy. And as you may or may not know, we're very lucky to have him here now as a visiting professor. And um, he's going to respond on what kind of influence we had with this program. So, um, basically, this program started in 2003. We were discussing whether it was 2002 or whether it was 2003. Um, and Javier Solana came here and gave a lecture, and we had the idea of establishing an independent study group that would think about uh, um, Europe's security capabilities and would report to him. Um, it was right at the beginning, many of you may remember, it was right at the beginning of the European defence and security policy. Uh, there was this Saint-Malo meeting of Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac where they said we need our own independent security policy. And in 2003, uh, Javier Solana developed something called the security, European Security Strategy that was published in December 2003, that was in a way, and I don't know if he would agree with that, a counter to Bush's national security strategy. That was when Bush was talking about preemptive defense. The European Security Strategy was a really important document and was very different. It talked about the five threats of terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. They weren't even threats, they were risks, they were challenges. Uh, weak states, organized crime, regional conflict. And it made a very, there was a very important sentence in that, which is none of these risks are purely military and none of them can be met by military means alone. So what we did was to come in in the con this context and start thinking about what kind of capabilities might you need to implement the security strategy. Um, so let me just say a couple of things about the nature of the study group. The whole idea was that it was an independent group and our only link to Javier Solana was that we reported to him. <laughs> Uh, we developed a wonderful group of a mixture of academics and practitioners, which we did jointly agree on the members of the group. Um, you know, I'm eternally grateful for the suggestion, for example, of Klaus Reinhardt, the former NATO commander in Kosovo, who 
a, a German general who played a very key role. And of course, Nazi Sarah, uh, Javier Solana's former colleague who was Minister of Defense of Spain and was the person who really established civilian control over the Spanish military. Much needed now, I would say, in Egypt, for example, but that's another story. So we had a really interesting group of people, lawyers, experts on civilians. We were funded quite independently by a Spanish um, savings bank, so we were a really independent group, but we reported to Javier. Our first report was produced in 2004, um, and it was presented to Javier Solana in Barcelona. And that was really, and, and what we called it, and I'll come back to why we called it that, it was called a human security doctrine for Europe. And what we proposed was really three things. First, we said for the new security um, threats or challenges, we need quite different security capabilities that include both civilians and military. But it's not just about bringing civilians and military together. It's about them operating in quite different ways. You can't put civilian and military together if the military are still doing war fighting, um, because then the civilians just become a target. So there has to be a change in the way you do it. And so we developed a set of principles, which we now boiled down to six at that time, I think, I can't remember, we kept going up and down with a number of principles. And because of time reasons, I'll just mention them briefly, but I won't go into them at great length. But the principles were, first of all, and that's where it comes most different from the military, was first of all about human rights. The centerpiece was the protection of human rights, and that meant both political and civil, and economic and social. And that has huge implications for the military, because if you start from a human rights perspective, you can't risk collateral damages in a way ruled out. You can't risk the lives of the people you're trying to protect if your primary goal is protecting people. So that, in a way, what we were saying with that is that the job is protecting people rather than defeating an adversary, saving lives, preventing human rights violations, rather than winning and defeating an enemy. The second principle, which we thought was equally important, was legitimate political authority. Uh, and the reason for that, I mean, some people might say a state, but we wanted to emphasize legitimacy because states often violate human rights. And we also wanted to emphasize that sometimes it might not be a state. It might be a municipality or an international administration. But in a way, the, the only people that can provide security and protect human rights is a legitimate political authority. And so everything has to be directed towards that end. It means, again, the job's not winning. The job is providing a political space where people can really discuss how to establish a political authority, where they're free of fear. So that was the second. The third, and I'm going to go quickly through the others, the third was bottom-up, that you always have to start from the perspective of the people because it's the people that uh, not only provide you information and knowledge, but it's they in the end that will have to solve the problem. Actually, when we presented it first, I don't know if you remember this, but when we presented it first to Javier Solana in Barcelona, he said, the only principle I'm worried about 
is bottom up and we said why and he said well I'm afraid you'll get the wrong bottoms <laughs> of course what he was talking about was warlords and mafia which is a serious point um, and uh, my answer is actually you know who are the right bottoms but a very good way of discovering the right bottoms is talking to the women <laughs> but anyway so that was the third the um, Fourth was effective multilateralism. Nowadays, uh, not only do operations have to be within the framework of international law, that's part of effective multilateralism, but also they involve huge numbers of different agencies who have to be operating in a coherent way. And I can say more about that later, uh, but for now I, I will just mention it. Then the fifth was regional focus. Most risks today are transnational. You can't deal with Afghanistan without dealing with Pakistan, Iran. Uh, you can, can't deal with problems in Bosnia or Kosovo without dealing with the neighboring states. So you always have to think of things in a regional context. And the final principle, and actually we didn't do it quite in this order in the original report, but that's where we've got to now, was clear, transparent civilian command. These kinds of operations, in the end, a civilian has to be the commander. It's very difficult for civilians and military to work together under a military command, but it's also very important to have a local commander who really knows the situation. So those were the principles. And then finally, our third proposal was that we need a new legal framework. Everyone says... We have to, this involves a movement towards a, away from a war paradigm to a law paradigm, but no one is quite clear what the law paradigm is. Are we talking about international humanitarian law? Are we talking about human rights law? Are we talking about domestic law? Are we talking about the law of the sending countries? So we, need, we felt there was a need to clarify that. So at the end of all that, we said, these are our proposals. We have to give it a name. They're proposals for implementation. That means they're a doctrine rather than a strategy. And we have to give it a name. And what shall we call it? And after endless discussion, we decided to call it human security. <laughs> and so that's why we called the paper a human security doctrine for Europe. Now, one other thing about our methodology, the way we did it was that we commissioned lots of papers background papers. We had researchers in LSE and outside from whom we commissioned uh, papers. Half the papers were really analyzing local situations where the European Union was involved, the Balkans, the Caucasus, and half the papers were really about legal instrument, about particular tools. We had a series of meetings, one in fact in Javier Solana's office, <laughs> where we brought together the people that we'd been talking to at a local level with his officials, which was actually very useful and interesting. And at the end, we came up with this report. But the whole lot, the report and the background papers, have been published in a book by Routledge. So that was the first report, and in a way we thought that was the end of it. <laughs> but what was interesting was that I will ask... Uh, Mr. Solana, Dr. Solana in a minute, but what was interesting is that I think the significant impact of that report was the fact that we reported to him gave it a much higher profile than it might other, a report of this kind might otherwise, and it generated a discussion 
uh, within, the rest, within the EU, particularly among Scandinavian countries, Iberian countries, Spain and Portugal, Belgium, which actually has now adopted a human security doctrine as its, for its armed forces. And very soon, when it came to the Finnish presidency, they asked us if we would do another report about how to put this human security doctrine onto the European Union agenda. <laughs> so we started another report. That was our second report, which we also presented to Javier Solana in Madrid in 2007, I think. And in that report, we decided to look at existing EU missions and see whether they conformed with our principles. So we commissioned a whole series of background studies on Palestine and on Lebanon, on uh, the Congo, uh, on Aceh, uh, to see how far the EU was moving in the direction. And on the whole, I mean, what we found was it was moving quite a lot, but there was there tended to be a big gap between what was happening on the ground and the political priorities. Um, just to give you the example of Palestine, I mean, it was quite impressive. I did the Palestine study, and it was quite impressive looking at what the EU was doing on the ground in terms of aid. This was just after the Hamas won the elections, and the EU was actually paying the salaries of um, uh, civil servants and pensioners directly into their bank accounts. It was a huge um, sort of administrative process. There was this uh, Rafa mission, which was supposed to be keeping open the border with Egypt of Gaza. And there had been a police mission to help the police in, um, in, on the West Bank. All of these were full of very dedicated, wonderful people who were really trying their best, but were constantly thwarted by decisions made at a political level because the EU was part of the quartet. So there wasn't enough pressure on Israel to enable the Rafa <coughs> mission really to function. EU COPS was really hit. It was supporting the civilian police by the fact that the Minister of Interior was a Hamas supporter. And meanwhile, the Americans and the Iranians were building up alternative forces um, for the, the Americans with the president and the Iranians with Hamas that were to lead in the end to the outbreaks of fighting and to Hamas controlling Gaza. So there were huge problems. And so we came to the conclusion that actually the EU human security needs to be a strategic doctrine as well as a, it needs to be a strategy as well as a doctrine. It needs to be a narrative of the European Union that is different from geopolitics and not just an implementing doctrine. And that was our second report, which was called um, A European Way of Security, I think. And again, as I said, subsequently, um, Dr. Solana proposed to us that we actually establish a study group on EU-Russian uh, relations. And in fact, he then stopped being high representative and he joined the study group as a member. <laughs> so 
I won't go into the Russian report simply for time reasons, but basically we followed the same methodology and we produced a report called Helsinki Plus, a human security architecture for Europe. And we're now trying to uh, start a, a dialogue with America, to, with Americans too, on these issues. I just want to say two other things before um, I stop. The, one other thing was the other um, impact I think we had was that the European Crisis Management Training Centre in Finland got very enthusiastic about what we were doing and asked us to design a training module for them. So we, we went to Kopiu in northern Finland in the middle of winter, which is quite an experience, and even I swam in the ice. And we trained people that were going to be sent to Kosovo for a week, and we developed a training module, which was also, they've, they've developed further, and they used it for people going to Afghanistan. The, uh, so that was one sort of very specific impact, which I hope we'll be able to extend. But I just want to say one final point. I mean, apart from anything else, I think it was very exciting from an academic point of view, because we were involved with practitioners from the beginning. We were doing research, but we felt our research was really relevant. And so people felt very excited about what they were doing, and it was very stimulating. And I think we really did develop our intellectual thinking and not just practical thinking. The other thing is that I think in terms of impact, and here we'll hear what Javier has to say, in terms of impact, it seems to me the impact was less on the, the evolution of ESDP specifically, although I do think we had some impacts, but more on getting a greater understanding within the European Union and thinking about how European Union security policy is quite different from classic national security policies. And I think what our papers did was to generate quite a widespread debate within the European Union. We, went, we had seminars in Berlin, we had seminars in Scandinavia, we had seminars in Prague where we discussed at great length these kinds of issues and I do think that's had an impact although we were just discussing beforehand you know now all of that seems to be fading but what I do think is it's set ESDP is quite small still but it has set the philosophy and direction of ESDP which I think is quite significant so having done that little introductory discussion I'm going to ask Javier how useful he felt the study group was well, thank you, thank you very much, uh, Mary. And, uh, most of the work was done by you and by LSE, but I would like to say what was the, the, the relationship we had, we constructed, and uh, the type of uh, uh, consequences that that relationship uh, had on, on creating the policy that the European Union did. And remember, it was a very young uh, situation. We are looking at uh, uh, late 90s, uh, we are looking at the end of the situation in the Balkans. Yeah. We are looking at the beginning uh, uh, of the post-Kosovo already uh, NATO action. So we are beginning uh, to, to get together around uh, the year 2000-2001. At that time the European Union started to apply the, the resolutions or the agreements that they were taken in the Amsterdam Treaty, which is the creation of uh, 
a high representative and uh, a creation of the ESDP and uh, the security policy and the foreign policy of the European Union. That was, as you can imagine, a, a very difficult thing to begin with. Now, now looks like history with the realities of today, but it was a very important achievement at the time. Now, we were coming from a situation that uh, uh, NATO had been very much engaged in the European Union through the Balkan War. And the European Union thought that it had responsibilities uh, that were not only to be delegated to NATO, but the European Union itself had responsibilities in all these problems related to security in the, in the region that at that time was, well, it's today, the region of Europe. And uh, to begin to construct that, it needed some uh, philosophy that could, uh, could drive it in. Now, I think that uh, the relationship we had with, uh, with, uh, with Mary and with his team was very important to begin to create uh, a certain doctrine that could help us to move on. That, as you can imagine, was very difficult. At that time, we were not 27 countries, but we were a good number of countries. And uh, countries that had different... Uh, uh, cultures of security, uh, different uh, histories, different uh, importance in the world, different uh, etc. And um, I think we had to put all that together to see uh, among all of that we could create a doctrine that could, uh, could be uh, shared by everybody and be useful. I think that took some, some time, but uh, with the help of many people, and of course with the help of the team here in the LSE, we constructed in 2003 the first uh, security strategy of the European Union. That was a very important document that is still is a document that uh, is the official document of the European Union as a strategy, a security strategy. It has not been checked. It has had uh, adaptations, uh, it has had uh, appendix, but uh, the philosophy, the whole philosophy is, is still is, the, is maintained as the official document of the European Union. And remember that 2003 was uh, the response, in a way, to, as uh, Murray has said, uh, the doctrine of the United States with the preemptive uh, uh, philosophy. And um, there we coined, I think we coined, really, the effective multilateralism concept. The first time it was mentioned in the document, effective multilateralism, which today is something that everybody uses, was coined in that, in that, uh, in that uh, document. So I think that uh, starting with that, we had to, to, to influence all the institutions of the European Union. I think that was very important, the meeting that Mary has mentioned, in order to influence also the parliament uh, that was also in a rather uh, disorganized manner tackling these uh, this topics. And it was very important for the European Parliament to come with some uh, uh, doctrine that could, uh, uh, could uh, permeate all the uh, operations that we, we did in that period of time. And remember that uh, from that period of time to the 2009, when I left, we were engaged in more than 10 operations. Uh, military, civilian and military, police and civilians, etc. And all of those uh, required some uh, common uh, uh, doctrine that uh, at the end of the day was not very different from what uh, we discussed with, uh, with the team uh, that was directed by America. So I, I think that from the point of view of the, of the question you put to me, it, it was influenced, uh, the research 
has influence on the activities of the European Union? My answer is yes. It could affect more? The answer is yes. Why? Because remember that in the, within the European Union, and uh, Mary has mentioned several countries, uh, the countries from the Iberian Peninsula, the countries from uh, northern countries, Finland, etc. She has not mentioned uh, two members of the Security Council, <laughs> France and the UK, and he has not mentioned either Germany. Um, well, how to get the envelope of all that with these uh, uh, countries which uh, are not so keen on these ideas of human security, to tell you the truth. They are much more keen on the ideas that they have as the national doctrines, etc., etc. So we can work better with countries that have been less assertive in, in, in international affairs and uh, construct with them a new theory than to do it with the, with the, the countries that have a tradition, etc. And they are not very keen, as Murray knows, and I know very well. He knows from theory and from practice, but it's very difficult to have. Now, you can handle the European Union well. Or with difficulties, but rather well. But as long as you have a difficulty between the two security members of the security councils, that means UK and France, they are not in agreement, but you are lost, uh, as you can imagine very well. Now, the third thing I would like to say, which is for me, for me personally, for, for us together, was very important, is to create a doctrine of legitimacy. I think, and we continue to think, and as we see the life of today, the events of today, Legitimacy is a very, very important, uh, it's a fundamental issue. Without legitimacy, it's very difficult to operate in this, uh, in this field uh, with uh, some, uh, some uh, sense of, uh, of moving forward. And um, I think that the theory and the doctrine that was uh, also, in a way, originated here in other places, but in, in a way here also in LC, I think it was very, very important to, to to give uh, this sense, uh, this uh, sense of the need to have everything that is done with the level of legitimacy, and I think the most dramatic uh, moment that I have lived in the position that I had for ten years, uh, it was Iraq, as you can imagine. Uh, that was the moment in which the European Union, well, everybody broke. Yeah. The Security Council broke, the, the, the European Union broke, the societies of the European countries broke, because the, the question of legitimacy was not uh, legitimacy was not uh, was not uh, was not there. So mm, I don't want to, to 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 say many more things about this, but uh, the two things I would like to say: we were coming from NATO, which was a military organization with political components and move into an organization that was political with military components. And how do you go from one to the other is the, is the, the difficulty, well, the, the, the challenge that we have as Europeans, as members of the European Union, to construct. And that was very, very useful, the help that we received from the, from, uh, from the uh, team of Mary and, uh, and the LSE. Now, she has mentioned uh, some operations. I, 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 I would like to mention the RAFA, yeah. because it was RAFA was the border of, 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 of Gaza <laughs> with, uh, with Egypt. And uh, it was a very complicated, uh, I mean, this is history, and in a way it's a failure. Everything we are talking about, uh, we talk about the Middle East, and, uh, is basically goodwill, but failures, because we have not been able to resolve just about anything. Yeah. 
but uh, it's not our fault. It's a, it's a collective fault, and, and, and the fault of. Uh, I don't think we are the most important uh, elements of the failure. But, uh, but uh, at that time, I remember very well when the big uh, uh, agreement was signed between the, uh, the international community at that time, the Quartet and uh, Israelis and Palestinians about the so-called access and movements. You remember the agreements of access and movement? That I don't know if that resonates mm, in your ears, right. but it was a very important agreement yeah. that was signed by Commissioner Rice, myself, uh, the Jim uh, Wolfenson, who was the representative, official representative of the Quartet, uh, with the Palestinian and Israelis. Now, it was very detailed how it was going to be the entering by the Palestinians from Gaza into Israel, the, the, the West Bank relation with Israel and with Gaza, all these things were very well done on paper. Nothing, nothing, nothing was implemented. <laughs> nothing at all. Not even today. But one thing, and the thing that was implemented was the Rafa crossing. And the Rafa crossing that was implemented was implemented by the European Union. With a, with a very rapid uh, responsibility we took to, to take care of that crossing point. It was the only one who was open, the only one who was open, until it was impossible to maintain it open. Uh, because the, 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 the problem that they had, we could not win that the, the negotiation is that the observers from the European Union were living in Israel. And at the end of the day, without the authorization of Israel to go to the border, uh, we could not go. And uh, it was, that was uh, the lack of equilibrium that it was. That, uh, and uh, as you know, that was destroyed at the end. Uh, history was like it was. And uh, still, let me just tell you that still, the day I left the European Union, still we have the people ready to go. So we, didn't, we never left because we wanted that if any day, for any reason, it was reopened, we should be ready in 20 minutes and 10 minutes or 24 hours to be there and not to waste any other minute. And the people are still a contingent, very small contingent, is still there. It has not been cancelled. Um, many other things we did, uh, very, very important ones. Uh, very mentioned Congo was very, very important yeah. what it was done in Congo. Three operations in Congo, very important. The most important one is to write the constitution that we did with people on the ground and, uh, and guarantee that elections, the presidential election took, uh, took, uh, took place with the presence of the, of the European Union. Well, I'm not going to go through all the missions that were more than, more than 15, but the, the, the essence uh, which I would like to say and to, to convey to you uh, is that it's very important that uh, people that uh, have to act do have a backup uh, for people who think about how things should be done. I think we're in a transition moment, and uh, it was at that time, it is today. And we are not talking about what is going today, but it's much more important what's talking today than what happened 10 years ago. And today, either we are really clear in the reactions we have a real theory how to react and implement it, or we will make a fool of ourselves together, collectively, international community, and specifically those who are around the European Union. And I would not like to see that happen. Therefore, I think to have a line 
line of thinking uh, that allowed us to move on without having to start from scratch every time that the Council of Ministers meets or uh, um, the structure that we have political and military do meet. So I, I am very grateful to what, uh, to what was uh, this uh, relationship and uh, as Mary has said, I have uh, changed my heart now and uh, although I, I always have a heart of, you know, of, uh, of an academic, I'm a, believe it or not, but I'm a professor of theoretical physics, which I don't know what the hell I'm doing <laughs> here, but uh, doing what I've done in the last 15 years. But, uh, but uh, I'm back in the, in the academic world and, and, and trying to keep on working with the experience that we have achieved from the practice and put into the theory now. Others have moved from the theory into the practice. And I think we could converge. That would be the best manner in which uh, we can help uh, to resolve some of the problems of the globalized world, in which very, everything is way much more difficult from a certain angle and easier from a different angle. Mm. So we don't, I don't want to be able to give you, uh, to leave you with a pessimistic uh, impression. It's not. I'm coming from. Uh, from uh, the, the Gulf countries, uh, arrived last night. Murray has come from Afghanistan uh, this morning. So we keep on uh, doing theory and practice at the same time. And I think this is a very, very important element uh, that I would like to transmit to you. It's not enough to be a good theorist and do a lot of research, but uh, it has to be accompanied also with the, with the mentality of, of of doing the, of being ready to do some practical work, which is very hard, very hard, but uh, the combination of two is what will make uh, resolve some of the big problems that we have in our agenda. And as I said, the agenda of today, I mean today, not tomorrow, to today, at this very moment, is very difficult. I really agree with that. I mean, I think it's very important as an academic that you actually can, as it were, test out what you're thinking about in real-life situations, so there's a sort of mutual interaction. I wanted to add a couple of things to what Javier said. Actually, what's been really interesting, and this is in terms of influence, is that you find now in many militaries, and it's not just the peripheral militaries, that some of these ideas are coming up, partly because of the real experience people have had in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. So actually the new British stabilization doctrine actually uh, is, has human security as a central um, goal, which is a huge step forward. But I think what you're seeing in the Ministry of Defense, you're seeing in the defense reviews that go on, is a real sort of conflict between this new approach and what you might call Cold War legacy thinking, which is also linked with the war on terror. As similarly to Britain, to my amazement, me and the French member of the study group were invited to present the ideas to the French Air Force Academy, which again, and now they're producing a little book about it, so which again shows a real radical change within thinking. Within, I mean, I, I never thought we would get inside the French military. Um, so there is a little bit of movement now. I think people are realizing we actually have to have a radical transformation in the way we do security. The other thing I wanted to say is that in our second report, what we really did explicitly say was that human security is a complete, is an, a strategic, a, a narrative that's an alternative to the war on terror. 
and we were quite explicit on that and that that's what's desperately needed um, at this moment. So with that, I'd like to open the floor to questions. Yeah. Sorry, a minute, Mary. I mean, you mentioned uh, Helsinki, the relationship, yeah. I mean, the new security um, structure architecture in yeah. Europe. Remember that the President Medvedev uh, put forward some ideas about how to to, to readapt to the, the structure of security in Europe, which is a very difficult issue, very, very difficult issue. And um, we try to, to put uh, some ideas forward. We have been talking to the uh, on this basis with uh, with uh, Russians, uh, with the Europeans, with the Americans, and, and see we can. I mean, this now is this after the, the signature of the START Treaty between the United States and Russia. That has the the, the pressure has diminished, but. Uh, before was really the central issue of the relationship between the, the European Union, the Americans, and Russia. And it will come back. And I think we have to be prepared to see if, uh, if we find a manner to, to, to readapt uh, that with, um, with a pos possible agreement between the uh, Europeans, Americans, and, uh, and Russia. It's very important for us Europeans in any case. So we can tell you more about that if anyone wants to hear more about it. But would people like to ask questions? Yes. Um, Do say who you are so we know. Uh, hi, my name is Robert. I'm a master's student in the Department of International History. Um, to go back to your example about Rafa, it seems that to there, there's this big, there, well, it's necessary to have the cooperation and um, the permission of the host country to be able to affect any sort of change. But do you feel that in order, I mean, the topic here is European Union foreign policy. Um, and as a foreign policy and especially pursuing human security, do you feel that needing the permission of the states you want to act in would undermine that policy? And part of that being uh, a European foreign policy you need some sort of coercive aspect, whether it's you know military power or some sort of economic um, leverage to be able to affect your policy against some sort of opposition. But as you know, everybody knows, there are huge problems with forming some sort of coherent European Union foreign policy. And so, in your position, sort of with wearing two hats between NATO and the EU, do you still feel that you know maybe NATO is a better way to go in this sense because? you have the added benefit of American um, coercive you know, leverage power to try to push this agenda a little bit harder than you could through your, the EU. Thanks. That is to me. Yeah. Okay. Let me, I mean, if, if, um, if I were judging in, in principle, what to my mind has been, would have been a better instrument to act uh, um, in our continent and in places like Africa, for instance, I would have answered, and I will answer, that uh, a European Union efficient uh, was uh, or is or will be a better instrument. That is what I think, and I discussed that with uh, the Americans, I discussed that with the NATO authorities, etc. Uh, I don't say that for Afghanistan. But uh, it would be very difficult to understand, to be 
understood by Walaut, and you said that, uh, and it's true that uh, you need the acceptance by the, the unless you use uh, um, really force and, and by a UN Security Council resolution. I mean, to to act in the in, uh, for instance, in Africa, in Chad, in Congo. It, it would be very difficult that, uh, to have it accepted uh, under the NATO banner. It would have been, uh, and it was much better to do it uh, through the European Union. The same could be said for the Middle East. I think the Middle East, uh, if, uh, if we arrive to today, in the future, we'll see. I suppose that this peace, I don't know what will happen, but at this point in time, I think it's better to do it with that uh, with that hat. I think now, um, of course, you need the the, the the acceptance of the countries to go, unless you use uh, the responsibility to protect, or what we call the right to be protected, which is a, is a is a different angle to look at the problem. But I think that uh, I prefer uh, to use the responsibility to be protected, uh, the right to be protected. And um, so that that is a bottom-up type of thing, as Mary said. But I, I prefer to use that terminology. But really, the official terminology of the United Nations is responsibility to protect. That never there was a proof in the chain in the reform of the United Nations never implemented, never implemented. And the discussion today is if it's implemented with Libya, but never implemented because no agreement in the Security Council to do it. It was agreement in this. Assembly, General Assembly, to define it with some difficulties, but when you want the case to be implemented, it had never been an agreement in the Security Council to do it. If I can add something, I mean, I think there's a real problem with NATO, which is a sort of institutional problem, that it was born out of the Cold War, and that still influences the way it does things. And if I think about um, if I think about Afghanistan, where I've just come from, there's a huge tension there, which is in a way a European-American tension between, if you like, a human security mission or at least a stabilization mission and a war on terror mission. <laughs> and I think that's creating huge problems. So that if you had a human security approach, I actually think it would be much more effective. Um, I also think that, you know, it's very difficult. I mean, coercive power, I think nowadays, at least of the traditional military kind, is, in, is, is less important in terms of what it can actually achieve, because actually it's not very effective. It's more important in terms of perceptions. So we think coercive power is important. We have a sort of um, narrative in our minds that it's important. And so, you know, what really mattered in the case of Israel and Rafa was why did, was the quartet not putting pressure on Israel to keep Rafa open? Because there was a thinking that what mattered was the war on terror, what mattered was Israeli state security. And I think it's changing that way of thinking that is absolutely critical. Yes. Yeah, it's this person first. 
Good evening. My name is Tanya Dimitrova. I'm a student at Queen Mary University right here. Um, you emphasized today a couple of times. Um, so if we're going to talk about the situation today, let me ask the obvious question um, about Libya. What do you, uh, what is both of your um, perspective on EU foreign policy and the situation in Libya today? Thank you. Shall I? Yeah, you start now. Well, I, I made my position very clear uh, publicly. I, 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 I do think that, uh, let me start from the, from the, from the, from the end. If we don't do right, Libya. It will be a very, very <coughs> negative, not only for the Libyan people, but it will have consequences in Egypt and all the efforts done in Egypt, in Tunisia, and other places. Now, the situation has been that from Tunisia and Egypt, a real bottom-up movement has appeared. And that movement has been able to change the realities uh, very high up. Now, if that is stopped by a brutal activity of a dictator, as in Libya, it will be very, very negative for the momentum that has been created. Now, let me say also that it has been very important, and I'm, I'm very impressed with that, how the prosecutors on, in Egypt, um, changing Libya's habit from Libya, have frozen the asset of their own leaders. It's true that uh, the, uh, uh, the banks in Switzerland have frozen the assets of uh, President Mubarak, but the prosecutor in Egypt has frozen the, the, and has prevented President Mubarak to leave the country. It's, it's a decision taken by the authorities today, which is, I think is very important as a signal for future dictators. I mean, you will be got uh, your your assets frozen, and then frozen not only by the external world, but by the internal new leaders of your country, even in the transition, even in the transition. And remember, the prosecutor of Egypt today is not very far from the prosecutor of yesterday. So, but uh, going back to Libya, I think that uh, I would like very, very much the philosophy of responsibility to protect, the philosophy of that would be applied in this case. And I think it would be very, I mean, don't ask me how to do it, because uh, as you see, it would be very difficult, it's very difficult to do it. But I think we have to be, to imprint our, to, to get our thinking. Remember that, uh, to, uh, to your surprise, to my surprise at least, the Arab League has met twice on Libya. The presidency of the Arab League today is Libya. And the Arab League has met twice at the level of foreign minister, the other last one the day before yesterday. And if you read the statements produced by the Arab League, first they are coherent statements, which is not very frequent within the Arab League, and very tough statement. The one on yesterday, it practically said responsibility to protect. Basically, they don't use the terminology, but uh, basically they're saying that. So, which is very, I think, is is a very attractive, uh, very positive uh, that uh, the Arab League as a whole. Uh, now, we have in the United Nations several problems: Russia, 
China, Turkey, uh, difficulties to, 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 to accept it. And then we have the difficulty of an implementation of the of the free uh, the, the fly song with all the difficulty that it implies you know, from a practical point of view. But I think we have to maintain very clear this banner. I think it's very important not only for the consequences for Libya, the Libyan people, etc., but also regionally. It will be the breaking of a momentum uh, which I think has uh, been a beautiful, it is a beautiful momentum that uh, it should be maintained. That is my position. I think my position is very similar. I'd say a couple of things. One is that I think it's terribly dangerous, the current situation, and I really fear what I call a new war happening in Libya. Um, you know, Gaddafi has been um, releasing criminals from prison and arming them, and I think that's terribly dangerous, and there are a lot of people in the area that would have an interest in, if you like, chaos for doing all kinds of human trafficking, oil smuggling, and so on. And this is the real risk that is faced at the moment. The second thing is, going back to something that Javier said earlier, it's the right to be protected rather than the responsibility to protect. And I think key to that is actually what the Libyan protesters want themselves. Um, my feeling is, uh, I don't know. The answer I don't know, but everything we're hearing is the one thing they don't want is actually Western military intervention. Um, if they request protection, then it has to be protection on the ground rather than bombing from the air, which doesn't risk our lives, but risks the very lives of the people who want to be protected. So that would be my qualification um, and, and I think this needs really hard thinking and really an attempt to communicate. We need huge solidarity um, at the level of civil society with the protesters. That's terribly important. And we need to actually find out what it is they want rather than trying to develop policies in the abstract. Okay, um, oh, the gentleman over there. Uh, I'm uh, native of the uh, only country so far in Europe that you, Mr. Solana, and 19 NATO countries have conducted a war against. I'd like to simply take out one operation from that war, which uh, has uh, global significance. This is where a U.S. plane flew across the Atlantic on a 15-hour flight, targeted the central television station in the middle of Belgrade, pulverized the building and plane murdered 16 media workers inside. Amnesty International regards that as a self-obvious war crime. So did the Yugoslav government at the time. NATO's response is that this is not an error. It was not a mistake. It is not collateral damage. It was a fully planned and executed operation, and hence it was okay. Now, we waited 12 years for some answer to be given to this. Under which circumstances would NATO, or in this case the United States, actually carry out such operations? We know that they were carried out in 2003 uh, uh, against Al Jazeera in, uh, in, in Iraq. 
And again, there has been no explanation as to what the circumstances have to be for TV stations and the civilian workers inside it to be taken out. Uh, British and other academics, I tend to go to the libraries and I look for the books and uh, you know how this is chronicled, are silent on the matter. 80% of them have had no difficulty pointing out can, media can you pressures ask a question, by Mr. Milosevic we're, we're, and We're others, very short of time. Okay. I hope that you have <laughs> addressed that issue and that we're going to have some answer to this, at least as to the position of the European Union and European countries. 40 European Union countries were at war with Serbia, by the way. But I hope we will sometime hear an answer to this. Thank you. I cannot give you the answer today, I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I hope it will be part of the main work here at the university. <laughs> okay, um, yes, the lady at the back there. We'll take these two questions at once, you, you as well, and then we'll finish because we have to apparently finish promptly at six. Hello, uh, my name is Amani Solomon. Uh, I'm the Egyptian Atkin Fellow at the uh, ICSR King's College. Uh, well, I just arrived from Egypt on the uh, February 8th, so uh, I had this question in my mind about the EU foreign policy and the uh, US foreign policy. When do you start calling people dictators? I mean, why do you start calling them dictators just after the revolts start? Why wasn't he... <laughs> <laughs> like, do we need another classification for the leaders of the world? Because Last time I checked, until January 25th, Mubarak was like the wisest man in the Middle East. And Ben Ali was the secularist guy who's protecting women of his country and achieved uh, an economic miracle in, in Tunisia. So I think that we should make something like an agenda to classify all the leaders of the world, who's good and who's bad, so then when a revolt happens, we just know where to go. Thank you. And the question down here. I want to, to, to answer. Yes, you will. You'll get your chance. But we're just going to take this last question and then we'll be able... Just here. Sorry. Um, so my question would be on, on um, the responsibility to protect, which you both emphasize very much. But my question is just, isn't that too all-encompassing? If you say responsibility to protect, protect from what? That could be anything so that could kind of easily be used by any government to um, pursue its own incentives, um, which has been done, and could that not also lead to a fatigue of human, human security? So, you start again, <laughs> or would you rather? Well, th thank you, thank you, thank you very much for the, for the question. I think it's a, it's a very important question, very difficult to answer. <laughs> Because the, 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 the time in which uh, uh, you apply the, the name <laughs> or you invent a new classification, it's not easy to do that. Let me tell you very humbly my own experience. I don't know how many times I've met President Mubarak, but it's beyond the 200. I met President Mubarak when he was still general of the Air Forces. And uh, I play squash with him. <laughs> and he beat me. And he beat me. Because he's, <laughs> as you know very well, he is tough. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I 
then as president, I don't know how many times I met uh, him. He was a very important player, very important player. And uh, if I have to tell you the truth, what I felt as time went back, went well, back forward, is that uh, the, the Egyptian uh, uh, influence in the region was diminishing at very fast rhythm, at very fast rhythm. And um, the thing that uh, at the very end, very end means uh, 2008, 2007, uh, which when I, I was more engaged, I had uh, many, many meetings with Omar Soliman, with, uh, many, many. And um, at that time, as you remember, it was the solution, I was trying to solve the question between Hamas and Fatah. And it was a delegation by the Arab League and by us and, 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 and being done by, by, by Egypt. And Egypt chose uh, the General Omar Soliman. So we, we dealt with him uh, regularly and uh, with not much success, as you know very well. Much, very little success. Now, I have to tell you that we began to lose uh, some confidence uh, because uh, Egypt began to be much more concerned about Sudan than about the Palestinians, to tell you the truth. And the division between the north and south of Sudan, the question of the water, the Nile, it took their minds completely, and um, much more than the other issues in which we were, we were engaged. But uh, I think that in, in the authoritarian regimes, but we have to agree on one thing, that uh, security and stability is, is a good value. The point is at what price is uh, stability and security. Now, how you measure the price is difficult. Now, I am not going to define today what is the price, but I have to tell you, when you see the people at the level you have seen the people saying no, you have to choose. And you cannot be, you cannot be <coughs> on the way so You have to choose. And I think we have chosen, and we have chosen immediately. Mm. Should have chosen before, but it's very difficult to choose before. Where do you do it? With whom you do do it? In this case, you had very clear that the, the people have decided they were not for them, and at that time you have to choose. And those who do not know how to choose, they will be let down on history. And, and I think the majority chose in the right in the right direction. Very difficult, very difficult, because as you know, and we all know. Uh, the stability is, but uh, the important thing that comes from all this uh, this uh, situation of the last uh, period of time is that uh, the mistake, to my mind, that uh, I recognize that I did make of, and I'm not free of that, is that uh, you have to choose apparently between the radical Islamist or um, getting the people of the countries. Uh, Submit them. It's not not free, which is 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 a wrong choice. It was a wrong formulation of the choice, and I think this. I hope it will be over. It will not be presented with this type of of of, of choice. That very link to the war of terror is very linked to September 11. Is very linked to Iraq. Is very linked to many many things which are part of our history, and I think we have to look back, and uh, not uh, when we look forward again, not to make any. Uh, mistakes similar to that. But uh, I'm sorry, I cannot give you a, it's an honest answer, 
but of course it doesn't resolve the past. I hope it will resolve the future. Now, the second thing is very, very important because that is one of the reasons why responsibility to protect has been not uh, used uh, more often and has, has been impossible to be used because of the Security Council. Because there are countries that do think their responsibility to protect may be overused and overused uh, to be another way of, of entering into neocolonial situations by the Bandur. And how to explain that, how to convince that this is not the case is very difficult. That way, for me, it's so important that the Arab League, a few hours ago, a few days ago, have recognized that this is a case in which it should be done. Uh, because uh, that uh, hesitation, that doubt, that uh, suspicion, uh, I think is uh, at this point in time um, over, in this case. That's why I think it's so important as a test case, this one. Well, because of time, I have lots I'd like to say on that, but I think I won't. But I do want to say one thing on the Egypt thing. I mean, I do think that the West made a point about Arab exceptionalism to justify their support to dictators. There was always this argument that somehow in Islamic societies they couldn't have democracy and they tended to Islamism. And actually, if I try to explain Arab exceptionalism, my view it is that it was actually the combination of oil revenues and continuing Western support mm -hmm. that sustained dictators long after they would have disappeared. I mean, if you look at the waves of democratization in Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, you know, they'd run out of money, <laughs> the regimes actually, and the regimes in the Middle East were not running out of money. So I actually think what's wonderful about the Egyptian demonstrations is, and, and, and everywhere else, is that they're disproving the theory of Arab exceptionalism, and I think that's fantastic. So there's lots to say, but I, I won't because we've really got to stop. Long, long I just want stop. to tell you all that in half an hour there's yet another lecture of LSE Works. It is um, Professor John Hills and Dr. Polly Vizard from the Center for the Analysis of Social Exclusion. They do fantastic work on uh, inequality, especially in this country. So it's worth listening to if you aren't exhausted after this meeting. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much. Very good. Very good. Very good. Egypt, Egypt is not...